Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart sits down to discuss the texts for the last Sunday of the church year. We really hope that you are encouraged and sharpened by this discussion over these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. Our regular companion in these podcasts, Alistair Roberts, is attending the meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society out in Denver and uh, will not be able to join us this week. We look forward to having him back in a couple of weeks as we... uh, continue our uh, work with this podcast. Uh, This uh, week we are talking about the lectionary readings for the final Sunday of the year, of the church year, uh, which is given various names. I kind of like the name Sunday Next Before Advent. Uh, It's the the only time you use that kind of circumlocution, so I, I enjoy saying it. The Sunday Next Before Advent, the Sunday just before Advent starts in 2018, that's November 25th. Uh, and uh, the readings are a uh, choice in our lectionary for each of the readings. The Old Testament choices are Isaiah 51, verses 4 through 6. That's one possibility. And then different selections from Daniel 7. Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, and then verses 13 and 14. But I'll be uh, talking about the larger context of Daniel 7. The epistle readings are either Jude, the last part of Jude, verses 20 through 25, or a section of Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. And then the gospel readings are Mark 13, verses 24 through 37, which is the very last part of Mark's account of Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Uh, And the other is John 18, verses 33 to 37. Um, And as we go through these, I won't won't deal with all of them uh, in detail and may not even deal with all of them at all. I'll leave uh, some for you to study yourselves, those of you who are listening. Um, but uh, the, the theme, of course, is uh, preparation for Advent. It's the Sunday next before Advent, after all. And so the uh, theme of the Lord's coming is a recurrent theme in these texts, as it is in the text for the following Sunday, for the first Sunday in Advent and throughout Advent. And one of the themes that we've highlighted before when we've discussed Advent readings is the variety of the Lord's appearances and the Lord's coming. Uh, the first advent of the Lord, you could say, is in the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, and the Lord comes in the spirit of the day and confronts Adam and Eve for, with, their, with their sin of eating the fruit of the tree. Uh, and then throughout history, God comes in various ways. He comes in order to judge. He comes in order to bless. He comes ultimately in Jesus Christ in the flesh, in the Incarnation. That's what we're celebrating during the Advent season. He's going to come again, but between His first and His consummate coming, uh, the Lord comes again and again. And some of the texts that we'll be looking at today are referring to the coming of the Lord, not at the end of time, but rather the coming of the Lord in the midst of time, the coming of the Lord, and particularly to bring an end to the Old Covenant order in AD 70, which is the topic of the Olivet Discourse. So um, when you talk about Advent and uh, uh, as we are on this, the Sunday next before Advent. I'm going to keep saying that phrase. Um, 
When we're talking about Advent, we're not talking about, uh, we are talking about something that happened once for all in the Incarnation, but we're also talking about a recurring event that takes place throughout history, both biblical history and throughout the history of the church. We could say, you know, take it down to specifics. The Lord comes at particular historical moments, but the Lord also comes to us. There's an advent. There's a parousia, an appearance of the Lord. Every time we gather for worship, uh, the Lord comes to meet us. And so we greet his coming. Or there's a, we uh, sing the sanctus and we, wa- we welcome and hail the coming of the one who comes in the name of the Lord uh, as part of our worship every Sunday because the Lord is coming to us and is coming to speak to us and feed us. So every Sunday is a is an advent. Every Sunday is a, a glimpse of the coming day of the Lord. So with that in the background, let's look at the passages. Uh, Isaiah 51 is uh, part of a uh, section of Isaiah, as I've said uh, many times on this podcast and elsewhere. Uh, it's part of Isaiah that's dealing with the return from exile. Isaiah is living sometime before the exile, but after the middle of the book of Isaiah, when it talks about the deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian threat and the Assyrian siege with Sennacherib. From that point on, the book is largely concerned with uh, the Babylonian threat and with the uh, return from exile in particular, the return from exile in Babylon. And Isaiah 51 is uh, part of that. Isaiah 51 is in some ways a a response to the uh, question of uh, Zion's question, Zion's complaint that she is without children uh, in chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord says that he gave a certificate of divorce to Israel. The mother, the mother of his children were sent away. was sent away. You were sold for your iniquities, your transgressions. Your mother was sent away. Uh, in chapter 49, 14, Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. So Zion is um, complaining about the Lord's forgetfulness and complaining about being bereft of her children. Uh, Zion is uh, the... Uh, Jerusalem pictured as a widow, Jerusalem pictured as a mother whose children have been carted off to exile, and so she's complaining uh, that her children have been taken from her. And the Lord is going to respond to that in the course of chapter 51 by reminding Zion of the beginning of Israel's history and how Israel came to be Israel in the first place. Uh, Isaiah 51, we're only, uh, the only section that's uh, technically part of the reading is verses 4 through 6. But just to set a little bit more context, uh, Isaiah 51 is organized by uh, three uh, exhortations to listen or to hear. Uh, 51.1, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. 51.4, pay attention to my people or listen to me. Uh, 51.7, listen to me, you who know righteousness. Uh, two of those in verses 1 and 7 use the Hebrew word shema, which is the uh, alludes back to the great confession of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the Lord is recalling Israel to that founding confession that the Lord is one. But three times that phrase is used. And there are three times also in this passage and into the next chapter where the Lord calls on Zion, Jerusalem, Judah to awake, to rouse herself. So 51.9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. 51.17, 51.17, rouse yourself, rouse yourself, arise, O Jerusalem. And again in 52.1, awake, awake, clothe yourself in strength, O Zion. So there's a, an exhortation to listen. And then there's also this call to awake out of slumber, which carries connotations of awakening from death, awakening from the death of exile, uh, the Lord shaking Zion awake from sleep, 
is uh, awakening her from a kind of uh, a kind of grave, and he's calling on uh, Zion to uh, uh, hear the good news of the Lord's restoration. So the, the answer to, the, to Zion's complaint, Zion complains that the Lord has forsaken her. Zion complains that the Lord has taken away her children and sent them off in exile. And the Lord's response to that is to call them, Hear, O Israel, hear you who pursue righteousness, and to recall them to the origin of Israel, which is with Abraham. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug, 51.1. And that's referring, as verse 2 indicates, to Abraham and to Sarah, they're the rocks from which the Lord uh, raised Israel in the first place. They're the rocks from which Israel was hewn. That, that's an interesting image in a, in a number of ways. Uh, the Lord is the rock of Israel. Uh, the Messiah is the cornerstone of the building of the house of God. Um, uh, so to call Abraham and Sarah rocks and quarries is to speak of them as being uh, analogous to images of the, the God who is the rock of Israel. It's also interesting that uh, the, uh, we don't think of rocks as being a, uh, a source of life. Rocks are inanimate. Uh, but uh, in, this, uh, in this passage, the rock is producing fruit. Uh, the, produ- the rock is multiplying. I think of the scene in the, in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 where a stone breaks the statue and then the stone begins to grow until it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. So there's a, there's, a, um, super, there's a supernatural, there's a miraculous thing going on here, as there was, of course, when Abraham and Sarah first gave birth to Isaac. Both of them were old. Both of them had bodies that were not capable in the flesh of producing a son. But the Lord uh, intervened and gave them a son. So that's the rock from which they're hewn. The, the, uh, the comfort that brings, verse 3, the comfort that brings to Zion is that the Lord is able to raise up from these stones, children to Abraham. He's able to raise up from the rubble uh, a, a new set of a new family for Zion, and that's the that's the comfort that He offers in verse three, um, which He also leads into a, a reference to Zion being restored from a wilderness to being like the garden. Joy and gladness are going to be restored to her. So that's all the uh, that's uh, that's the. First part of the chapter that's uh, not part of our reading, actually, but that's that's the response to Zion's complaint that the Lord offers here in uh, in chapter fifty one. Uh, the reading actually begins in verse four, and it's just a few verses of verses four through six. Uh, and here the Lord is promising not only he's not not only promising to restore Zion, to restore her children, uh, to do again what he did with Abraham to make a family out of rocks, out of dead things. But he's also promising to raise up um, uh, justice, his justice as a light to the peoples. Uh, Zion is going to be the source of that light, or I guess the, the mediator of that light. As the Lord dwells in Zion, Zion will become the beacon that will draw the nations. And the Lord describes this as the coming of his righteousness and the coming of his salvation. That parallel is used uh, several times here, verse 5. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. At the end of verse 6, My righteousness shall not wane. I'm sorry. Uh, my salvation will be forever. My righteousness will, shall not wane. Uh, verse 8, My righteousness shall be forever and my salvation to all generations. Uh, this is one of a number of places in Isaiah where you have that, that uh, parallel between the Lord's salvation and His righteousness. And of course, in Hebrew, 
uh, we, when we hear the word righteousness, we should think this is, this, we should remember this is the same word as justice. So the Lord's justice and his salvation are not being, they're coming together and they're two sides of the same coin for Isaiah. We tend to think of justice and salvation as being opposed to each other. Justice and mercy as being opposed to each other. If God does justice, then we're all condemned. And so he has to show mercy in order to save us. But uh, in the way that the Isaiah uses the terminology, in the way the Bible generally uses the terminology, uh, justice or righteousness is God's own commitment to his covenant, God's commitment to his promise to Israel, his commitment to Israel. And so his justice is expressed and displayed in the fact that he comes to Zion's rescue, restores her children, brings her back from the dead, uh, and turns the garden or, or the wilderness of Zion into a garden. That's God's justice is at work when he raises up Zion as a beacon of light to the nations. So that's, a, that's an, an important, um, important for understanding the biblical, under, biblical teaching about justice, that, that this, is not, um, this is not said in opposition to salvation, but is uh, God's saving acts are acts of righteousness, and God's acts of justice are saving acts. Uh, he's destroying oppressors, and he's, he's rescuing the oppressed. That's what salvation is, and that is, in, is, is an act of justice. Uh, just as, as, a, as a footnote to that, if you want to trace that out kind of dogmatically, uh, I think that's important for trying to figure out what, the, what Paul's talking about when he talks about the righteousness of God manifested in the gospel, what Paul's talking about when he ca- talks about justification. Um, we tend to set up uh, justification and our atonement theology in terms of a contrast or a tension sometimes even a tension within God, between God's justice and God's mercy. Uh, but those two things are perfectly harmonious. And in fact, God does, when God does justice, that is a saving act. That's an act that brings uh, redemption and deliverance for his people. So um, that would be one reading for this, the Sunday next before Advent. Uh, one Old Testament reading, and you could bring out the, uh, the uh, uh, Advent, the parousia, dimensions of that, talking about the righteousness of God coming near, uh, the Lord coming to his people, the Lord rescuing, the Lord doing justice, the Lord raising up children. Uh, the other Old Testament option is Daniel 7. Daniel 7 is a, uh, includes a vision of Daniel. Daniel 7 begins with a vision of Daniel during the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Uh, Daniel sees the sea, uh, the wind of God, the four winds of heaven are stirring up the sea. Uh, the sea is the world of the Gentiles, and the four winds of heaven are the, um, uh, James Jordan has argued, and I'm persuaded of it there, that it's a picture of Israel as the uh, spirit-filled people that's stirring up the Gentile world to produce uh, these, uh, these, these beasts that are going to come out of the sea. Um, and here, this is, this is not a picture of uh, demonic forces coming out of the sea. This is the Lord uh, raising up from the Sea of Gentiles a series of protectors and guardians for his people. That's part of what, the, uh, what happens when Israel goes out among the nations. They begin to stir up the nations. Then the Lord brings up a guardian, uh, as, as uh, Jim Jordan likes to say, friendly beasts coming out of the sea that are going to be protectors to Israel. Uh, and those uh, beasts are the lion, uh, the bear, the leopard, and some indescribable something. And each of those corresponds to a, uh, a, a Gentile power, an empire that uh, 
arises in the latter part of, the, of Old Testament history. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome are the four. So the readings for the, this Sunday, though, are not focusing so much on the beasts, but on the vision that uh, uh, Daniel sees in verses 9 and 10, and then again in verses 13 and 14. Uh, Daniel sees beasts coming out of the sea, and then he sees uh, a, the, the Lord sit and pass judgment. And that judgment is a judgment in favor of the Son of Man. So uh, the Son of Man is uh, the son of Adam. He's a uh, beast tamer. Uh, Adam was given dominion over the beasts. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is being raised up in order to take the dominion that belongs to these beasts and uh, enjoy it as an everlasting dominion. Uh, and that uh, conferral of the authority of the beasts onto the Son of Man, that transfer from bestial power to human power, uh, is a result of the Ancient of Days passing judgment. Uh, so verses 9 and 10 describe this, uh, this court scene. Thrones are set up. The Ancient of Days is on his throne. There are myriads and myriads standing before him. Books are opened and the Lord uh, passes judgment in favor of the, of the Son of Man. The Son of Man is coming on the clouds. So there's the Advent theme. Uh, here, the Son of Man is coming up, up on the clouds. Uh, many, many people read this as a reference to the return of the Son of Man coming down on the clouds, but the, the uh, portrait in verses 13 and 14 is the Son of Man arising on the clouds. It's an ascension, uh, and the Son of Man receives from the Ancient of Days this dominion. So uh, we could say, well, that's Jesus. You've got these four empires, and during the time of the last empire, during the time of the Roman Empire, we have the Son of Man, Jesus, come, and the Father, who is the Ancient of Days, confers on him the dominion that belonged to these beasts. Jesus is now the world emperor who has received all dominion over all nations. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Um, but then um, that's, that's only part of the picture. Um, and there are a couple of complications. Uh, one complication is to the identity of the Ancient of Days. Say so that's the Father who's conferring authority on the Son of Man, who is the Son. Um, but when we get to the book of Revelation, we find that Jesus himself is described as if he were the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days has a vesture like white snow, hair like pure wool. His throne is ablaze with flames. His wheels are burning fire. That uh, hair like pure wool, like white snow, that's a description of Jesus from Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is the one there who's being depicted as being like the Ancient of Days, who's conferring a kingdom. Jesus is not just the recipient of a kingdom, but Jesus is one who confers a kingdom. So that's one, that's one complication. So maybe the Ancient of Days in Daniel is not representing the Father, but representing the Son. If that's the case, then the Son of Man who comes up on the clouds is not the Son, but he's someone to whom the Son uh, gives authority and dominion. Um, that is, the Son of Man would represent the corporate Son of Man, the church. And that really does, uh, that fits with Daniel, uh, because later on we're told that uh, this whole vision is about the Lord giving authority to the saints of the highest one. Verse 18, the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever uh, throughout for all ages to come. Verse 22, the Ancient of Days came, judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So this vision is not really about the transfer of power from and authority from the beasts to Jesus. It's a, about the transfer of authority from the beasts to the saints 
who are with Jesus, that is, to the church. I think you can probably see it in both registers. You can say the Ancient of Days is the Father conferring authority on the Son, but the Son is the head of a body, and so when the Son receives authority, also the saints who are with Him receive authority. You can kind of uh, put it in systematic terms in that way. But in any case, we shouldn't miss the fact that the, the arrival, the coming, the advent of the Son of Man in, uh, in uh, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, confers a kingdom, a dominion over all peoples, nations, men of every language. But that kingdom is not just the ki- a kingdom administered and ruled by Jesus, but it's a kingdom ruled by the saints, by us, in other words. That's part of the good news of Advent. Uh, the good news of Advent is not just about the coming of uh, the Son in His incarnation, but it's also about the Son's gift of authority and dominion to a new Adamic humanity, which is uh, the church. So those are the Old Testament readings for this um, possible, those are possible Old Testament readings for this, the next, the Sunday next before Advent. Um, the epistle readings uh, are, you have two choices, uh, Jude 20 through 25, Revelation 1, 4 through 8. Uh, I don't really have much of anything to say about Jude. Uh, we published an essay about Jude on our website recently, so you can take a look at that. Uh, Mike Bowl gives a uh, uh, an intricate uh, structural discussion and discusses the uh, the form of the letter to Jude. I want to focus on the the other alternative, which is Revelation one verses four through eight. This is part of um, the uh, introductory section of Revelation. Uh, the first eight verses, uh, approximately, of Revelation are kind of a prologue, where John identifies himself, talks about the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which has been given to him. Uh, and then confers this blessing. That's the large part of uh, the reading is this uh, benediction that uh, John begins with. Uh, Revelation as a whole has kind of an epistolary structure to it. He begins with uh, an identification of himself as the one who's writing to the to the churches. He ends with a kind of benediction. Uh, and uh, so the whole book of Revelation is a big letter within which we have several shorter letters in the in chapters two and three. You have seven shorter letters to the seven churches of Asia, but Revelation itself is a big letter that is written, I think, to the churches that are in, uh, particularly to the churches that are in Babylon, or the churches that are in Asia with a view to what's going to happen in Babylon. So the, the um, benediction is a Trinitarian benediction uh, in verses 4 through 6, uh, but it's a really complicated, interesting uh, Trinitarian benediction. There's grace to you and peace. You know it's a benediction. From him, that's the Father, from the seven spirits, the Son, and from Jesus Christ in verse 5. That's, the Spirit is the Spirit. So from Jesus Christ, that's the, that's the Son. So the order is Father, Spirit, Son. There's that triad. But then you have a triad within the triad. Verse 5 is a triad. Jesus is called the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then his work is described in a triad, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom and priests. So there's uh, the triadic structure. You have this multiple triadic structure that's going on. Jesus Christ is, is fairly clearly identifiable in the terms that are used. Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the true martyr. All the martyrs that are described in Revelation are just imitating Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's raised from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth and so on. 
Uh, but the other description of the, of the Father and the Spirit are unusual, to say the least. Um, the Spirit is described as the seven spirits, and I do think that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's not a reference to some cre- set of created spirits who are before the throne. That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that phrase, seven spirits, arises a number of times in the course of the book, early part, in the early part of the book at least. The seven spirits are before the throne of God when John enters into uh, into heaven. The last time you see a reference to the seven spirits, they are identified as the seven eyes of uh, Jesus. And so the spirit, Jesus and the spirit become united, and the spirit is the, the vision of Jesus, as it were, the fiery vision of Jesus. Seven suggests the fullness, of course. You could say uh, the number seven represents fullness. The number seven in Revelation and most of the Bible also uh, refers to creation. And so um, the spirit hovering over the waters in the original creation forms the cosmos by a seven-day sequence in a seven-fold rhythm. And you have that same seven-fold rhythm going on throughout the book of Revelation. So I think that would be one of the connotations of calling the spirit the seven spirits, that he, the spirit uh, operates in these kind of seven-fold patterns um, that uh, we find in uh, Genesis and Revelation. The other intriguing uh, name is the fathers. By elimination, him who is and who was and who is to come must be the father. That's not a general name for the Trinity, but that's a name for the father. Uh, Then we have the seven spirits and then Jesus. Uh, But the father is named in terms of these seven, uh, in terms of these three time frames. He's the one who is, present tense. He's the one who was, the past, and he's one who's coming, which is not just a future tense, but also connotes a kind of action, uh, a, uh, an arrival, an advent. This is the God of Advent. Um, I think that's uh, a, an expansion of the name that uh, Yahweh gives to, uh, reveals to Moses on Mount Sinai. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Uh, all the different grammatical variations on the name that the Lord uh, gives on uh, Sinai. And this is a kind of translation of that that describes the Father in terms of his, um, his relation to time. Not that he's bound by time. Uh, rather, the description suggests that he, is, uh, he transcends time in the sense that he's not, he's not confined by it. We can't say of ourselves, <clears throat> we can't say of ourselves in the way you can say of God that I am and I was. Uh, it's true that I am and 20 years ago I was. Uh, but there's a radical discontinuity there with the Father. He is and he was and he's coming. And that is the one, that, that's who he is. He's, he's always the one who is and who was and he's coming. That doesn't, that's a little different from saying that uh, uh, the Father is, um, in, exists in a timeless eternity. That you can describe God's uh, eternity in terms of his encompassing of time or his involvement in all times. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's completely outside of time or he's se- completely separated from time, but his eternity is his uh, capacity to be present at all times uh, and his, um, his encompassing of time. There's no, there's no past um, that you can get to uh, beyond God's past. There's no future you can get to that's beyond his coming. So one, one other comment on um, the... Uh, on this passage, uh, verse 7 alludes to uh, Daniel 7. 
He's coming with clouds. That's re referring to that uh, the coming of the Son of Man to receive dominion. What's intriguing about that quotation here in Revelation 1 is that if that's referring to Jesus coming to receive dominion, then that's something that's already happened. John is writing after the ascension. Jesus is already ascended as, as, uh, as uh, John sees later on in chapter 1. So how does this function as kind of a theme verse for Revelation? How is, it, how is Daniel 7 telling the story of Revelation? I think it, that only makes sense if we recognize that Daniel 7 is about the control of the kingdom on the saints. Not on Jesus, but on the people who are with Jesus. And that really is the, what the Revelation is about. The big arc of Revelation is about the, uh, the uh, sufferings of the church and the glorification of the church to share with Christ uh, and to be enthroned with him in heavenly places. Uh, it culminates with the millennium when the martyrs are on thrones uh, ruling in heaven with Jesus. So um, that quotation from Daniel 7, I think, is uh, in, in, uh, to, to understand how it works in Revelation, you have to see that the Daniel 7 is about the uh, gift of the kingdom to the, uh, to the saints. The other part of verse 7, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Um, again, this is kind of a theme verse for Revelation, but we kind of wonder how is that the case that um, this is something that is going to take place shortly? How is this something that John can prophesy about? Uh, couldn't he just see it happen? That people saw the one who they pierced? Uh, and when they pierced him, they didn't really mourn over him. The tribes of the land didn't mourn over him. So that's kind of an odd thing to have as a theme verse for a prophecy about something that's going to happen in the future. It looks rather like a description of something that happened in the past. And the other thing is that it's not clear in Revelation where this actually takes place. Where do the tribes of the land mourn over the one whom they pierced? Where do we see that actually happening? John puts that verse, that's a, 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 a paraphrase of a, a passage from Zechariah. He puts that verse as, the, as a theme verse of Revelation. If it's a theme verse of Revelation, we should expect that we see the fulfillment of that within the book. Otherwise, he's kind of, he's kind of deceiving us about what the book is about. Uh, this is a book about mourning over the pierced one. Well, but we never actually see that happen. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I think that the answer to that question, where does this take place in the book, is Revelation 18. And if you want to see a full, exp a full exposition of this, you'll have to uh, just uh, bite the bullet and purchase, the vol purchase volume two of my Revelation commentary. Uh, but uh, Revelation 18 has a role in the book of Revelation that we often miss. It's a very long chapter. It's one of the longest chapters in the book, which is uh, kind of odd because it doesn't seem like anything much is happening. Uh, by the time we get to Revelation, Revelation 18, you've already had the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Babylon has already fallen. And all you have in Revelation 18 is a series of different groups that are mourning, apparently because they've lost the ability to trade with, the, with Babylon. It doesn't seem like they're mourning over the pierced one. It seems like they're mourning because, the, because Babylon has fallen and now they can't carry on their traffic and their trade anymore. I think that chapter has a is has a different different kind of twist in Revelation. That chapter is the fulfillment of the promise of uh, Revelation one seven. That's where we see the tribes of the land mourning, and the different groups who are mourning over the devastation of Jerusalem. 
Uh, I don't think that we, I, th I think what we see there is not inhabitants of Jerusalem and inhabitants of Babylon who are repenting in the sense that they're turning to Jesus, but they are mourning over the destruction of the city and there's a kind of move toward repentance that we see there. Uh, they're mourning over uh, Babylon. I think there's also a sense in which they're mourning over the, uh, the ones who were pierced, that is the saints who were martyred uh, along with Jesus, who shared in the martyrdom of Jesus. And so in, uh, in a more extended way, they're mourning over the pierced one. But again, if you want a full exposition, um, put it on your wish list. Uh, Christmas is coming, and uh, maybe you'll get it in your Christmas stocking. Uh, but I, I spent a lot of time on Revelation 18 because it, uh, as I went through the book, it struck me that that was such an odd chapter, uh, so lengthy, and yet apparently no particular point to it. But I think it's there because it's, uh, it's the climax of that theme of the tribes of the land mourning for the pierced one. Uh, the Gospel reading, I'll, I'll just spend time on the Mark reading, which is uh, the last part of the Olivet Discourse. We've been looking at the Olivet Discourse already in, the, in these lectionary podcasts. And uh, this one, uh, this is just the conclusion to that chapter. Now, this is, this is a conclusion that some people <clears throat> kind of uh, blink. Uh, they're, they're able to hold the thought that uh, the Olivet Discourse is about the fall of Jerusalem. They're able to hold that thought when Jesus is talking about the uh, wars and rumors of wars, false messiahs. They're able to hold that thought when he talks about the abomination of desolation. But then... Suddenly they get to the light will not, uh, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven. The Son of Man will come in the clouds. And then it looks like we suddenly leaped over thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands of years, from the fall of Jerusalem to the end of time. And uh, it seems like we, we got a, we're in a different time frame there. Um, I don't think that's the case. I think instead what we're looking at, even in, those, in, uh, in that section of the Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus is still talking about things that are about to happen. He's still talking about things that are in the around 70 AD and just in the aftermath of AD 70. Um, in those days after the tribulation, the tribulation is the tribulation of the church that leads up to the fall of Jerusalem. It's the tribulation, the birth pangs that lead to the formation of the new covenant. And after, the for, after that tribulation, uh, we see the collapse of the universe. The world falls apart. Um, as uh, many have pointed out, N.T. Wright has pointed this out recently in his, in his work on the Gospels, um, the sun, moon, and stars collapsing, falling, going out. That's typical prophetic language to describe the end of a world. Uh, Jim Jordan has uh, made the point that this goes back to Genesis 1, where the sun, moon, and stars are put in the sky as markers of time. They keep times, and so when they go out, that, that means that clocks are stopping. Uh, they are rulers. They rule the day and the night, and so when they go out, it's a sign that the ruling that some ruling power is being eclipsed. So that's what's being referred to. It's not the it's not talking about the collapse of the physical universe. It's using that imagery of cosmic collapse to describe the collapse of a political universe. This is probably referring to the um, shakeup that takes place in the Roman world in and around the time of the uh, fall of Jerusalem. Um, Verse 26 is a problem for this interpretation. You see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And again, it, people assume that it means the Son of Man is coming down. This is the final coming. But that too, as in Revelation 1, this passage too is quoting from Daniel 7. 
And in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is going up. He is ascending to receive dominion. So how is it that after the tribulation of those days, at the time of the fall of Jerusalem, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power? Um, how will they see the ascension? The ascension has already happened 40 years before the, uh, the fall of Jerusalem. So how is it that they see it then? I think we have to recognize that the word see in Greek as in English can mean a variety of different things. It can mean actual visually seeing something. It can mean discerning something or coming to know something. And I think that's what is, uh, that's what's going on here. When all these things happen, Jesus has prophesied the fall of the temple. Jesus has prophesied the collapse of the universe, the collapse of the political universe. When people see that happen, then they will remember Jesus' prophecy and they will recognize him as a prophet. When they see those things happen, they'll remember Jesus claims to be the messianic king. And they will discern that this collapse of Jerusalem, this destruction of Jerusalem, the collapse of the, the world that then was, that that's a sign that the Son of Man has come into his kingdom and that the Son of Man is now reigning. So the, these historical events will enable them to discern the truth of Jesus' prophecy and to discern who Jesus is. That's again linked to what uh, Revelation 1 says. When all this happens, then they'll see uh, the one that they pierced and they will mourn over him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.